Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and CEO of Mind Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the Mind Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Stephen Gundry is a renowned heart surgeon, New York Times bestselling author, and medical researcher. He is the author of Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, The Plant Paradox, The Plant Paradox Cookbook, and his latest bestseller, The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. He is without a doubt one of the most inspiring, informative, controversial, yet powerful voices in wellness today, and is also part of our functional nutrition program. Dr. Gundry, welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course, it is always a pleasure. Congratulations on your newest best-selling book, The Longevity Paradox, which everyone is talking about. I love the subtitle, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age. So what's new and exciting since The Plant Paradox? Well, you know, I've uh, I've had the pleasure of, of living in Loma Linda, California for the last 20 years and uh, it's not called God's waiting room for nothing. Uh, so I, I've had the opportunity to look at a lot of super old people as my patients who've volunteered to f- let me follow them. And so it, it's intrigued me what makes you know these super olds. And it, it also didn't hurt that I spent much of my career at Loma Linda University, which is the only blue zone in the United States. So I've been very intrigued with longevity. So what's what prompted this is um, the plant paradox was certainly a good take on to what's going on in your gut. And the more I delved into this and looked at the guts of these super old people, the more commonality you could find with the gut microbiome uh, in super old people. And in fact, as, as the book shows, you can take and look at sequence the gut microbiome in healthy 105-year-old people around the world. And that gut microbiome and its diversity, that means how many species, there's tens of thousands of bacteria and fungi and viruses that live in our gut. The diversity of the microbiome in these 105-year-old people who are thriving is the same as a 30-year-old. Wow. Yeah. And so then you go, holy cow, uh, isn't that interesting that these super old people, you know, would have the diverse microbiome of very young people, uh, 30-year-old is young folks. Um, and then what's really fun, I've been fascinated with this creature, actually all of my adult career, uh, called the naked mole rat. And it, everybody's got to Google it. Uh, it's probably one of the ugliest looking creatures you'll ever see. And the naked mole rat uh, is the longest living rat by far. Most rats 
have a lifespan of about two years. The naked mole rat has been clocked at 20 and 30 years, 10 to, 20, 10 to 20 times what a traditional rat would do. And these rats live in subterranean tunnels in the Sahara Desert. And they actually behave very much like termite uh, or uh, ant colonies or uh, bee colonies. And they actually have a queen uh, that, that makes all the other naked mole rats. But anyhow, these guys live literally forever. And you look at the naked mole rat's microbiome, and it's identical to the 105-year-old human microbiome. So then you start going, you know, do, 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 do. Who's in charge of our longevity? Uh, it's actually the microbiome and its interface with the wall of our gut will determine what happens to you. So with regards to the microbiome, is that, there's like news every day. It's, everyone's it's super exciting, lots of news. Like, is that the most exciting news to you with regards to the connection to with the microbiome to longevity? Or like, what else has occurred there? Yeah, I think that's the exciting news. And the more I research the connection between the health and diversity of the microbiome. And then when these exciting new studies came out recently involving tens of millions of human beings, that our genome, uh, our genetic destiny, probably only plays about 6% into our fate, into what's going to happen to us, what diseases we're going to get, how long we're going to live. And 94% is actually controlled by environmental factors, the food we eat, and our microbiome. And what's great about that, what's so exciting about that it's is... It's empowering. It, it, that's exactly right. You know, we're not just sitting around, oh, dear, you know, mom... Got bad genes, yeah, I got cancer bad genes, runs, you know, heart disease yeah, runs, everything. Yeah. So I actually, I talk about this, that when I take a family history, what you're really wanting to get from that person is, okay, so if you eat like your mom or dad ate and they got diabetes or they got cancer, uh, then the odds are that's what's going to happen to you because you were taught to eat. And in fact, we delve into how you, your family history is basically you got the microbiome from your family. And there's really cool studies of twins that were separated at birth, genetically identical twins, that were raised apart, and they follow the family history of the families that they were raised with much more than their genetic family history uh, because they literally got the microbiome of their family. And we know that one of the, we know obesity among other things, is is a contagious disease because obese people who live with other obese people, you actually get their microbiome that makes an obesogenic microbiome. Wow. We know, for instance, so much of the recent research, we, we all know about the bacteria that live in our colon, but we've started to shift our focus to the bacteria that live in our small intestine, our small bowel, where most of our surface area is. And there's been discoveries in, in humans that there are bacteria that are really good at extracting calories and, from the food you eat and then 
feeding it onto you, whereas there are a set of microbes that literally keep all those calories for themselves and make lots of other babies and you poop them out. <laughs> so you could have two people who literally eat the same thing and one of them will be skinny and the other one will be fat depending on the bugs that are living in their small intestine. Wow, so of the, you mentioned the 94%. Uh, do, are we at a place yet where we can break down the 94%? Like this part's diet, this part's lifestyle, this part's environmental factors? Are we able to drill a bit down on that or? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, again, the more I, you know, learn and see in my patients about the importance of the microbiome, the more I realize that most of us have had uh, our microbiome destroyed, not really through our fault, through the massive use of antibiotics that have been given to us um, or that we've consumed inadvertently because they're in almost all the food we eat, all the beef, all the pork, all the chicken, all the farm-raised fish, um, and we had no idea that these small amounts of antibiotics would decimate this microbi microbiome within us of tens of different thousands of species. I mean, there's a paper out of Stanford a few years ago that looked at people who took a single round of antibiotics, and two years later, they may have only one or two bacterial species in their colon. So you you part of the camp, uh, Frank Lipman, our friend who I go yep. to here in New York, will say like you need at least six months. Like if you do a round of antibiotics at a minimum, you need three to six months. Like what's your take on what you need from probiotics after? Yeah, I think that's very true. The other the other mistake we make is that most of the probiotics that are available, these are not native bacteria to us. They um, they basically go on vacation. They come and spend a couple weeks on us and, you know, sit by the pool and then they leave. Not to say that isn't important, but most of our native species, and I talk about this uh, a lot in the, in the longevity paradox, we have this little reservoir of bacteria at the base of the crypts, and it's kind of a bunker. And we won't go into the details, but there's microvilli in our intestines that give us the surface area of a tennis court. And at the base of these microvilli, think at the base of shag carpeting, there's, there's, little, there's little collections of these bacteria, and there's a collection of stem cells. And what's important is that these guys are basically in hiding, and they can't be killed by antibiotics, but you actually have to coax them to come out. And we've got a lot of tricks in the book on how to coax your own bacteria to come out of hiding and to stimulate your stem cells to start growing. So you got me thinking about two things when you talk about bacteria. I mentioned probiotics. Um, I know it's hard to generalize when we're all believers. Uh, you know, there are some generalizations. Um, but we're all individuals that are unique, specific to two things, testing supplements, you know, herbs, minerals. So what are your thoughts with regards to those two categories, testing and supplements, where you could say, I think pretty much most people should get these types of tests, whether it's for leaky gut or what have you, general health markers, cardiovascular, inflammation, and so forth, and then supplements. So um, I think the number one test, if, if somebody said, okay, tell me, 
one test that would really tell me my fate, um, it would be a fasting insulin level. If, if you only had one test, and it's about an $8 test. Uh, most people, their well-meaning doctors get a fasting glucose level, and if they're quite a good doctor, they're going to get a hemoglobin A1C. And you see A1C on TV almost every night. I got my A1C down. Um, that's a decent test, but it really doesn't give you a great... I mean, if your hemoglobin A1C is above 5.6, you know, go screaming, running, do something quick, because that's a recipe that you're going to die young. And we can dive into that. But fasting insulin level tells me much more about what's going to happen to people. Insulin as you know, handles the sugars and the proteins that you eat. And insulin is excreted to basically get insulin, get sugar and protein out of your bloodstream and into primarily muscle cells. And insulin is, is basically a salesman that knocks on the cells and say, hey, you know, we've got some great sugar and protein here, anybody hungry? In the vast majority of the world, and particularly America, our muscles aren't hungry, and they're full. And so when insulin comes by and knocks on the door, they go, no, couldn't eat another bite, go away. Well, insulin doesn't take this laying down, and so the pancreas excretes more insulin. So insulin comes back with 10 of its buddies and tries to shove sugar and protein into cells. And the cells, for most of us, shove back and say, nope, not interested. You know, I've got all the magazines I need, like in the old days. Go away. And insulin says, geez, you know, I got to get rid of this sugar. I got to get rid of this protein. I guess I'll store it as fat. And most, actually, diabetics eventually realize that insulin is the fat storage hormone. And that's why so many diabetics who go on insulin shots notice that they gain weight fairly, fairly mm -hmm. rapidly because they're injecting themselves with the hormone to store fat. But what we didn't know until very recently is the brain can also become insulin resistant. And it's now called type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And so if you look at fasting insulin levels of people in their 50s, used to be just men, it's now women, and track them into their 60s and 70s, there is a dramatic decline in memory over those periods of time when you have an elevated fasting insulin level. Plus, the thing that I really scare my patients with, I hope, is that insulin is a growth hormone. And as we get older, there is nothing in us that we want to grow. I've actually never seen a man or a woman with a colon polyp who doesn't have an elevated insulin level. I've never seen a man with a big prostate who doesn't have an elevated insulin level. And this is speaking for a gentleman who, a number of years ago, when I first measured my fasting insulin level, it was 16. And, you know, I was a big fat guy at that time. Even though I was running a lot, I was going to the gym a lot, I was eating healthy, and I had skin tags. Um, and I operated on tons of people with skin tags, and my dermatologist said, oh, those are benign, we'll just burn them off, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. Well, when I stopped eating the way I ate and my insulin level fell to two, uh, all my skin tags fell off. They just fell off. 
because they didn't have any you know growth hormone to stimulate them and i have so many of my patients that you know they'll have a history of colon polyps and we changed their diet and they haven't had a colon polyp since wow. i used to have a big prostate i don't have a big prostate anymore it shrunk so Fasting insulin, H1AC, is that the same? Yeah, hemoglobin A1C hemoglobin looks A1C. at about a two-month period of how many sugars you're eating and how many proteins you're eating. And that's an interesting subject in and itself. So we, everybody knows a good uh, charred steak, those crusty bits on the outside of the steak. Those are called advanced glycation end products, and they're nicknamed AGEs. So ages occur when you have a chemical reaction bonding sugar and protein molecules together with heat. And it's called the Mallard reaction. And we have sugar, we have protein, and we have heat in our bodies. So 24 hours a day, we're making advanced glycation end products. People who have age spots on their skin, those are advanced glycation end products and i used to have a ton of them all gone i have one left i'm working on that one but i I used to be just spotted and they all went away wow so hemoglobin a1c we know that these attach to the hemoglobin molecule on red blood cells and red blood cells last about two months in circulation before we grind them up and reuse them so we can measure age on hemoglobin and get a good idea of literally how fast you're aging. These guys occur in our brain, they occur in our heart, outwardly they appear on our skin. And so you don't want to age quickly. And interestingly enough, in my office, so probably perfect is around 5.0. Pre-diabetes starts at 5.6. True diabetes, most of us agree, is around 6.0 on hemoglobin A1C. In my office, if you get below 5.0, you actually awarded a coveted gold star. <laughs> and we have them, and they're put on people's foreheads. And I love it. <laughs> so if you had to round out the list, are there like one or two more tests? Yeah, so, so those, those are really the biggies. Uh, absolutely, you need a vitamin D level, yep. uh, I think. Most people should run their vitamin D levels at around 100 nanograms per milliliter. I personally run mine greater than 120. I've done it for the last 12 years to prove I'm not dead. Um, I, I do, I've not seen vitamin D toxicity yet in my practice. Uh, I think vitamin D is probably the greatest hormone. It's a hormone, it's not a vitamin that's, that exists. I talk a lot about in the book. People are interested in telomeres or telomeres, little end caps on chromosomes. People with the highest vitamin D levels, human beings with the highest vitamin D levels have the longest telomeres, and people with the lowest vitamin D levels have the lowest telomeres. You make the case for a warmer, sunnier climate. Uh, Yeah, although 80% of Southern Californians in my practice do not have an adequate vitamin D level. They have a low vitamin D. And I can tell you that Every human being I see with an autoimmune disease, and autoimmune disease is now greater than 50% of my practice, uh, comes in with a low vitamin D level. And I don't stop with these people until we get their vitamin D level above 100. Wow. And sometimes it takes a lot of vitamin D. I have some of my autoimmune patients 
on 40,000 international units a day. Oof. And the University of California, San Diego, says in, in patients that they've studied that the minimum dose that the average American should take is 9,600 international units a day. And they have yet to see vitamin D toxicity in people taking 40,000 international units a day. Wow. Yeah. It's okay, vitamin D. I wouldn't have put that on the list. Yeah, vitamin D. It's actually the, the first thing that I would have people do. Okay. There are other markers for inflammation, HSCRP, C-reactive mm -hmm. protein, fibrinogen, myeloperoxidase. The problem with these is they're very variable. Uh, I have dogs, and I usually have a scratch. My C-reactive protein would go up. Um, years ago, in 2007, I gave a paper at the American Heart Association looking at flossing habits and C-reactive protein. And I found in 300 patients that if I could get them to floss every other day, their C-reactive protein would go down. And that actually brings up, opens up a Pandora box because the oral microbiome may be critical to us avoiding uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's. Sure. Well, it's all connected. Yeah, they're all connected. Well, also, too, like, so um, heart disease runs in my family, so I do LPA, I do the whole, another good, that, that the Bob Harper one, apparently Bob Harper had very high LPA. Yeah, that's what got Bob, Bob yeah. And unfortunately, um, I've been trying to get people to measure their LP little a. Insurance doesn't book. cover it. I got like it, a pushback from our insurance company being like, it's not there. I'm like, whatever. It's <laughs> it's like eight bucks. I know, uh, I mean, I know. it's really cheap. But, but it's just funny that well, it's the reason, so outdated. Well, the insurance. reason, yeah, well, the reason for it was because cardiologists, pushed back that LPLA wasn't an important problem, even though it's actually the number one her heritable cause of heart disease, LP little a. Mm -hmm. And it's a gene that makes yep. you make it. And the reason cardiologists said, no, you could ignore it is because there was no drug to treat it. Niacin <laughs> was the only treatment, and right. you can't patent niacin. Now there are two injectable drugs. Most people have heard of Repatha, which will lower LP little a. So now, actually, for the last year, it's been hilarious. The cardiology literature is full of, oh my gosh, LP little a is the worst particle of cholesterol, and you've got to get your LPLA measured, and you got to get it down. And thank God we have a drug. Yeah. Well, it's like cholesterol is just not as real. It's not as good as Frank will say. You've said it's just not a great marker there are lots of other whether it's lpa c-reactive protein we discussed it's particle size it's yeah all, it, it's, everything yeah. else ct scan we're just a lot more sophisticated yeah, cholesterol just does not yeah. correlate with with heart disease yeah. it just doesn't so one thing so segueing um you know a lot of a lot of excitement in supplements right now a lot of new interesting science you know there's the rise of hemp and CBD and collagen and interesting developing science on NR and Nick, I can never pronounce it, nicotinamide, nicotinamide riboside, yeah. um, magnesium. I feel like all these things, like I'm just curious, like in terms of herbs, minerals, like what do you think is really interesting and developing and that you find yourself like, let's say generalizing, probably good for everybody. Well, certainly vitamin D is good for yep. everybody. Absolutely, uh, omega, long chain omega three fats, whether they're DHA primarily or EPA. Yeah. Um, I talk a lot about this in the Plant Paradox that you can you can look at humans with the highest levels of what's called the omega three index, which looks at the amount of DHA and EPA in your blood over the past two months. 
people with the highest omega-3 index have the largest brains as they age and the largest areas of memory, the hippocampus, compared to people with the lowest levels of omega-3 index, have the sh most shrunken brains and the smallest areas of memory. And our brain is about 60 to 70% fat. And half of that fat is DHA, the long chain omega-3. And surprisingly, the other half of that fat is arachidonic acid, that supposed evil omega-6 fat. And yet half of your brain is arachidonic acid. <laughs> and there's some very good studies out of Japan that show that the longest living people actually have, in the best memory, have the highest levels of arachidonic acid. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What about other? I'm curious. Like, what's your take on? I'd say a couple of the hot, the trendiest right now, CBD. Yeah, collagen. CBD. Yeah. Uh, so collagen. Let me go to collagen first. There's a very interesting paper uh, that looks. Let me back up. So amino collagen proteins have to be broken down into amino acids to be absorbed. As far as anyone knows. There is no, so you swallow collagen, which is a bunch of amino acids all chained together to make collagen. They're absorbed through your intestinal tract as amino acids. On the other side of your intestines, there is not a spreadsheet saying, okay, uh, we need to reassemble these amino acids into collagen. There's no such thing. If you need to make some collagen, then okay, let's do that. But just because you swallow collagen does not mean it will become collagen on the other side. Mm. And there's a paper that proves that. And anyone who says otherwise just doesn't understand how absorption works in our intestines. So is collagen going to hurt you? Absolutely not, except it's an animal protein. And I'm actually developing uh, right now a no-bone bone broth that should, should build collagen. Uh, so uh, CBD oil. There are tons of components of the endocannabinoid system. Endocannabinoid, the most... most uh, there, it's a fun word. Yeah, it is an endocannabinoid. ECS. Yeah, yeah. Endocannabinoid system. So there are tons of these. And I've, I've got a friend at Twin Labs uh, down in Florida who is breaking down all of the various components. And uh, they think that CBD may not even be the important one. Uh, having said that, about 50% of my, my patients who use CBD get a benefit in sleep uh, or a benefit in pain. Uh, the other 50% doesn't seem to have any effect. Uh, Joseph McCall and I have talked about this on podcasts. He's seen no effect personally uh, with CBD on his sleep patterns, and he, he tracks with aura rings. Some, some people don't do well on it with sleep. It could keep them up. Yeah. it's Like I say, I think that we're just scratching the surface sure. with this. And thankfully, you know, now that it's becoming legalized, and particularly with the farm bill, at least hemp derives CBD should be uh, well, legal. Yeah, well, the interesting thing, like you mentioned, like the best part not necessarily being CBD, it's like the parent and child. Most people don't realize CBD is a child, and the parent is hemp, and there's lots of good stuff in the hemp. Right. And you don't want to, like, just cut out the rest. Well, that's exactly right. Right. Yeah, I think it's, we're just at the infancy. And I think it is going to happen, because now at least people can start sure. looking at this. Uh, 
Speaking of NMN or niacinamide nucleotide, I had the pleasure of spending some time with David Sinclair recently, and he and I have known each other for a number of years, and we spent about three days together. He's pretty doggone excited with a form of nicotinamide monocide. He thinks that probably the ribicide isn't going to be useful. Uh, There is one human study that 1,000 milligrams of ribicide will actually kick up uh, NAD by 8% in lymphocytes in humans. 1,000 milligrams is really expensive. It is, and that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. So for an 8% boost, uh, he says, not worth your money. Interesting. I don't want to put words in his mouth. David, if you're listening, I hope I (laughs) paraphrase that Interesting. What about, I'm curious, like sleep. You know, you hear magnesium, you hear GABA, you hear jujube, you hear L-theanine, you hear melatonin, like all those. I'm just curious. So magnesium is probably the best sleep aid there is. And I'm a a huge fan of magnesium in, in lots of ways. Um, that and potassium are really how we slow nerve fibers in the heart so we can stop the heart, uh, so we can operate on it. Uh, Joseph Mercola thinks that magnesium may be our best protection against electromagnetic uh, frequency radiation. And as you know, he's very fearful of uh, EMFs. <laughs> very fearful. Maybe a little too fearful. Maybe a little too. But uh, I think everybody should get magnesium. It uh, absolutely is an amazing calming agent. Some women really react to magnesium with loose bowel movements, but you can use magnesium oil sprays, which are absorbed without causing sure. diarrhea. Or you take a pill, or it's capsule instead of a powder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think all of these other components I will use on a number of my sleep-deprived people. I think low-dose melatonin is not a bad idea. You just can't do it every night. It's yeah, not just, good yeah, for you. Yeah, not good for you every night. Uh, I'll take I'll take uh, time-release melatonin if I'm traveling internationally, but I only could take it for a couple of days. Sure. So couple things it's the, the the trend that keeps on going i guess that's how you define a trend uh keto and intermittent fasting has anything changed with regards to how you view if and keto and, and exciting new interest science and uh, one of my claim to fame that most people don't know is i may have been the original writer on intermittent fasting i it was actually in my first book of 12 years ago it's that long ago it was wow. that long ago and we had an entire chapter and my editor said, you know, you are such a nut that you can't tell people that, you know, they should go 16 hours without eating or even longer. I would actually propose 22 hours. Yeah. And she said, you are such a nut. We're going to cut this. I said, no, 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 I'm telling you. You know, here's the science in there. We knew the science back then. I said, you give me two pages. She said, ah, geez, I'll give you two pages. So anybody who looks in Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, there it is of long ago. And so uh, we, we literally worked on a circadian rhythm. The reason we took over the world is because we are the fat-storing ape. <laughs> we really are. And so... The reason there's no gorillas up in Siberia is because they could have never made it up there because they would have had to 
literally starve or not eat very much for a very long time. And we could we run the metabolism of bears, and bears can go five months without eating. And so we use, we're supposed to be using ketones for literally half our life and preferably half of the day. And we should be able to shift between burning glucose as a fuel and burning ketones as a fuel. And this metabolic flexibility, most of us have lost because 24 hours a day we're burning glucose as a fuel. And the really cool thing about burning ketones as a fuel is they're incredibly fuel efficient and you don't oxidize burning ketones the way you burn glucose. And if you like the theory of oxidation and aging and uh, why wouldn't you want to reduce your burn rate? And so I think you know, ketones are here to stay. Now, having said that, I measure fasting ketones in all my patients. And most people who think they're on a ketogenic diet aren't. They're just eating bacon all day they're and just calling a keto. Yeah, they're eating bacon all day, <laughs> and they're, eat, they're eating lots of animal protein as a delivery device for the fat. And this is the mistake Dr. Adkins made. And I know all the mistake Dr. Adkins made uh, because my first book, Random House, bought. And Random House had done all the Adkins diets and all the South Beach diets, and they thought I had figured out what Adkins did. So I actually got to meet uh, Dr. Adkins' co-author. I still take care of Dr. Adkins' head nurse, um, who's now in her 90s, by the wow. way. And so the mistake he made, he was a cardiologist, and he was a high-fat doctor. And he got into such trouble with the American Medical Association that he morphed into a high-protein doctor. And what he didn't realize, I think he didn't realize, uh, is that we don't have a storage system for protein, uh, except muscle. And if we're not building muscle, we don't waste energy. So we convert protein into sugar, gluconeogenesis. So he actually died a fat man. Um, yeah, yeah, he did. Remember, yeah. yeah, like Elvis. Yeah, he, he, like he really... Like he, there was a lot of similarity, like with regards to excess, uh, what's the proper scientific term for... Uh, <laughs> Not gluttony, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, but like a lot of, uh, from what I read years ago, I want to say it was like, uh, didn't exactly, wasn't uh, having regular bowel movements, something along those lines. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, and I think most ketogenic dieters don't really realize that you either have to have periods of time-restricted fasting to get into ketosis, plus you really have to limit both carbohydrates and protein, and that you really should be getting the vast majority of your calories out of good fats, and those good fats my personal feeling is olive oil and avocados. Um, if you want to throw in some other oils like uh, coconut oil or my, my preference is MCT oil, uh, great. But the idea that you just should be eating you know, ribeye steaks and bacon sure. to get in ketosis I think is a mistake. Well, the thing I really like about you, and I've said this to you personally, um, we live in a very divided world in terms of philosophy with regards to diet and it's often religion and 
okay, we'll, we'll take, you know, everyone knows you're, you're not a fan of lectins. And we'll, I always say, like, let's just remove beans from the conversation. <laughs> it's very controversial. But if, you, if, you, but if you take that, yeah. But, but So you take out beans, I think, what I like so much about your philosophy, essentially, and I'm assuming this hasn't changed, it's eat a lot of vegetables, eat a lot of healthy fats, plant-based fats, not animal fats, limit red meat, eat wild fish, and you're pretty good. It's, it's, I go back to, it's like the Michael Pollan quote, which I eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. And I think it's attainable. It's not an all or nothing approach. Correct. You know, uh, my wife and I, in general, during the week, uh, we eat pretty much vegan during the week. And then we eat uh, usually wild shellfish or wild fish on the weekend. And I call myself a vegetarian. <laughs> now, I think a very strong argument can be made for really, really limiting animal, pro- animal protein. And I make the argument in the book that the, the thing that unites blue zones, and blue zones have wildly different diets. This idea that all blue zones eat whole grains and beans is not true. But the thing that unites all these blue zones and the other areas that have now been discovered with super long-lived people like the Achiroli south of Naples and the Catavans, is they eat very limited animal protein. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the uniting feature of all of them. The other thing that's fascinating that I talk about in the book is they all live in hilly communities. They're moving. Got to move. Are, yeah, and they are moving against gravity. And I, I bring, uh, bring up the example of my grandmother who died uh, in her sleep one month shy of her 100th birthday. And my grandmother lived in a three-story house. And her uh, bedroom was on the third floor. And when we were kids, uh, my sister and I just thought my, our great-grandmother was nuts because, you know, why wouldn't Granny, you know, why wouldn't you move your bedroom down to the first floor? It's ridiculous. And she you know, climbed up and down her stairs till the day she died up to the third floor. And by the way, she always had a tiny kind of sherry glass of Mogan David Concord grape wine by her bedside that she took every night before she went to bed. I love it. I'm a big believer in stairs. Yeah. No, I mean, and you see so many people make plans to get out of their two-story house or to move their bedroom downstairs. I'm like the opposite. Well, it's partly because I really don't like elevators. Yeah, well, I'm 6'7". I don't like... Oh, no, that's true. You, you hate elevators. <laughs> well, actually, one of the one, most wonderful things, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. William Strong at the Medical College of Georgia, a pediatric cardiologist who really sent me on my career, our pediatric uh, hearts ward was up on the eighth floor of our hospital and so we would start rounds uh, with him on the ground floor and we would walk up the eight flights uh, to the to the ward and down the eight flights and we hated him i mean we're exhausted medical students and he'd say come on let's go i love well in a world where people are working they're commuting and they're trying to fit in work out like personally i'm a big believer in just work it into your routine so it's non-negotiable so if like you're taking the stairs every day it's like you don't have to go anywhere yeah, it's no, just, that's just part exactly of your right. day. Yeah, and in our hospital, you know, we we have uh, we have six stories, and I always just walk, you know, walk walk the stairs. Um, interesting. I, I mentioned the plant in the longevity paradox. There was a fascinating study I learned about a few years ago that was done in Switzerland, and they wanted to prove the benefit of of hiking. So, uh, what they did was they. 
they got a mountain where there's a tram and half the group had to hike up and ride the tram down the other group got to ride the tram up and walk down and the researchers are going oh this is going to be great we're going to find this huge difference because obviously the people ride up uh, aren't exercising turns out they had the identical health benefits and the identical gain in muscle mass because we forget downhill is harder downhill is hard you gotta work harder yeah Yeah, exactly breaking um and so you know if nothing else Take the stairs down, and you will perceive it's easier, but you'll get a benefit. I love it. That may be my new favorite health hack for people. Take there you the go. Stairs There's the down. takeaway. Walk the stairs down. So I want to close the loop on intermittent fasting. What's your? I know you do the 22 hours. That's tough for some people. To it really do. So, like, what's your minimum? Is it 12, 14, 16? And Walter Longo has got his own thing. Which we, well, so, and I talk a lot about yeah. uh, Walter's program. Uh, we've we've he actually, doesn't like avocados though. I know we've whatever. I, I just I, I'm it's like like okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put that one out there. We're okay with avocados. Well, it's like Dave Asprey hates kale, so that's okay. exactly. It's yeah. like well, what's left to eat. But uh, and and Walter gave me a, a wonderful quote from my book, um, and we I, his his idea that we should have. Uh, a five-day vegan, low-calorie diet that will act as if you were calorie-restricted for the whole month is actually pretty cool, and it's in my book. Um, he has a you know, program that you can buy called Prolong, and he got the first patent ever issued oh, I didn't for, know he got the patent. Yeah, for that program. It's a big deal. That's a big He's deal. He's at a USC, though, so hopefully he didn't... <laughs> That's okay. A lot we'll, of news in USC these we, days. Yeah, well, I guess we'll <laughs> forgive him. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, so I think start slow. The, the one thing I really think you can do this is choose to either skip breakfast or skip lunch and, and start there. And if you have to have breakfast, one of the things that's pretty easy to do is have yourself a, a tablespoon of MCT oil. It'll actually, for most people, get them uh, converted into ketones fairly Now, do quickly. you think that breaks the fast? Yes, I do. But if I'm trying to get somebody into this, sure. I think this is the way. Because again, most people are insulin resistant. Most people have high insulin levels. And I, I talk about in the book, insulin blocks you from making ketones. Uh, insulin, it's a it's really nerdy, but insulin blocks what's called hormone-sensitive lipase from breaking fat into ketones. And when insulin levels are high, insulin blocks hormone-sensitive lipase. So it's kind of like water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Right. And that's where this low-carb flu comes from, the Adkins flu. Uh, it's because people have plenty of fat, but they can't get to it until their insulin levels fall. So the cool thing about MCT oil is the, the, it'll go right to your liver, and you will generate ketones out of MCT oil, even without insulin. So, And with regards to time, still 12, 14 hours is where the science is. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. Uh, you know, Dale Bredesen, I think, um, would say if you have mild cognitive impairment, 
you really need to get to 16 hours. Most people, probably that 14 hour is a very doable thing yeah. for the average human being. And the nice thing is, you know, if, when you're sleeping, you don't have to worry about eating. That's very true. You just dream about it. All <laughs> good. Right. Just, oh boy, I need something to eat. So with regard, so, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put lectins aside. What are people doing? Good advice, put yeah. lectins put aside. Put lectins aside, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I had to get that in. So we put, put lectins aside. What do you think that you know people who are healthy are doing that probably isn't so healthy for them? Well, I think one of the one of the messages out of the paleo and community, uh, paleo and keto communities is you, you ought to eat lots of meat and saturated fat and bacon and cheese. And, and that's healthy. And uh, hey, I grew up in Omaha and Milwaukee, and you know, steak and a bratwurst is a great idea. But the evidence is pretty impressive that these sorts of saturated fats actually, in the long run, are going to be very detrimental to us. Right. Um, I think that's big. Uh, that if sure. I if sure. I had one comment again about my colleagues in the paleo and keto community, it's that. And I'm always number number one rated paleo book on Amazon, and I'm also the number one vegetarian book on Amazon. And, uh, so, so th- there are distinctions, though, which I think I'm just curious if, if if your take is still the last time we spoke, if it's still the same. So, with regards to cheese, you're okay with Southern France. With regards to that's still the case. Yeah, and actually, I, I there's some really interesting stuff in the new book. Aged cheeses, uh, for instance, like Parmesan cheese, mm-hmm. which is made with A2 cows, by the way. Uh, aged cheeses have a, a really cool compound called polyamines, and if people want to take away something from my book, we know that polyamines, which are present in aged cheeses, they're present, by the way, in lentils. Uh, They're present in semen. They actually got the name from spermidine. And so these these compounds are very, very uh, life-extending compounds. And when you, there's even a study in Italy comparing men who ate Parmesan cheese on a regular basis versus men who did not regularly eat Parmesan cheese. And the Parmesan cheese eaters had a dramatic decrease in cardiovascular disease. Interesting. So Parmesan, Italian cheese, good. Southern France, yeah, cow is so, still good. Yeah, so aged cheeses, you know, like uh, like Brie or Canterbury sure. or some of the aged Swiss cheeses. Most Swiss cheeses don't come from Switzerland. And are you Goat and sheep cheeses. And it's the A1, A2 is the important yeah, that's, distinction. Yeah, that's the important distinction. And with regards to uh, coffee and what you put in your coffee, you're still ghee is ghee is in, ghee's okay, butter yeah. you're not a fan of. Yeah, and Dave Asprey and I talked about this. Um, ghee's okay. I'd actually rather people just put some MCT oil in their coffee if they're going to do anything, or coconut milk in their coffee and put it in a blender. You'll foam it up really quite nicely. Um, so what's changed on ghee? I didn't think you were. Well, you're a little bit okay. neutral. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, ghee's okay. I think. Again, what's too much? What's too much? Is it like a daily thing? Is it a couple times a week? Is it? 
Well, so, you know, ghee, particularly if it was coming from grass-fed cows. Yes, grass-fed good, ghee. Yeah. Grass-fed organic ghee. Yeah. yeah. Or even buffalo milk uh, ghee, water okay. buffalo ghee, um, which is really trans- really white. It's kind of interesting stuff. I think the more I can get people to switch to really good plant fat like olive oil, it's not it's not the fats that are really important. It's what these fats are bringing to sure. the equation. And ghee certainly has vitamin K2, no, no doubt about it. Uh, that was the X factor uh, from long, long ago. Um, so ghee's okay, but I'd rather uh, have people use MCT. really good olive oil. And, or al- and, olive oil MCT. Yeah. What about, so coffee in general? Coffee's great Black coffee, you. how many black cups? Coffee. As, as we sit here and there, enjoy our there, black coffees. We're enjoying our black coffee. Uh, there's some nice data that five cups a day of coffee pretty much prevents uh, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. I'm all set there then. And interestingly, it turns out that Turkish coffee, which is boiled, actually seems to have the highest benefit. And that's probably because the grounds are constantly in contact with the solution, and so more of the polyphenols come out. And fun fact, dark roasting destroys most of the polyphenols, and light roasting keeps Interesting. So light, light beans, light yeah, roasted light, beans. Yeah. I would have. And, not yeah. Who that. would have guessed? Yeah. And Ethiopian coffee. Uh, uh, all coffee originally originated in Ethiopia. Ethiopian coffee has the highest level of polyphenols. So you go Ethiopia. So you would not go with the Central America regions. You would go to Ethiopia. Number Love one. them all, but uh, Ethiopian coffee seems to have the highest polyphenols. Interesting. So. Going back to longevity and the longevity paradox, you know, what's the one thing or a couple of things we all should be doing? We want to live to, uh, as you say it, we want to die young at a ripe old age. How do we, how do we become a super, a super old, 100 plus? How do we all do that? So you, you've got to you know, follow some of these steps. You've got to get good bugs in your gut. And that's actually pretty easy to do. We know what they like. And it turns out that intermittent fasting or short fasting periods will actually foster a better microbiome. It doesn't cost anything. Yeah, and it's free. It's free. I mean, it's free. That's the best part. It saves you money. Because everyone, wellness is so expensive. I got to do this. I got to do that. Intermittent fasting is free. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, I we were talking before the show. I have patients in with Medicare and Medicaid and Medi-Cal who don't have a lot of money, and they actually save money on my program. Besides, we get them off their diabetic drugs and hypertension drugs. So it it is you can actually eat, you know, cheaply doing this. I think the other thing people have got to get their vitamin D levels up. It's just so critical. So IF vitamin D. And you do ha- you have to find an exercise program that you enjoy. And I don't care really what it is. Uh, I mean, you know, taking your dog, get get yourself a dog. I actually write people prescriptions for dogs. I, I literally. So, so what's to, you know, people will say, oh, you need to do interval training, you need to do this, you need to do that. Like, what's the minimum in your, is it just stairs? Is it being active? Like, is it 10 minutes? What's the yeah, minimum? Yeah, I've actually got a five-minute program that anybody can do. And you really only need to, need to do it a couple times a week. But, yeah, you know, just get out and walk, if, if nothing else. Uh, take the stairs, nothing else. Um, get a dog. You know, I, I take my dogs on a two-and-a-half, three-mile jog through our hills. I live on a hill. And just get out there. 
I mean, my favorite line, I think I, I think it was Tim Ferriss, uh, I stole this from, the best exercise is the one you actually do. That's exactly right. You know, <laughs> when I was a runner, the favorite quote was, the most difficult step in running is the step out the front door. <laughs> it, it, it's really true. So with regard to longevity, our, our mutual friend Dave Asprey, who's been on this podcast, has you know, famously declared he wants to live to 180. So I was like, Dave, you know, really? And, and he talked about that, and it was interesting and logical and understood. I want to hear your take. Like, what do you think about that number? you think 180 is real? So, uh, and I've had Dave on my podcast, and uh, Dave and I have gotten to know each other. Um, we share an editor. So we know that people, human beings, can live to 120. Uh, we know that. It's been done. Uh, so... We know that at the moment that's the attainable goal. So I think it's not unreasonable to you know, say, okay, 120 is very attainable. Certainly, as I profile in the book, there's increasing numbers of people in their mid-100s who were vital. I have a picture of, of Michelle, whose name is Edith Murray, the picture on the, on, the, on the book. She's 105 and a half. Um, when that picture was taken. That's her hair. And she was in two-inch heels, and she walks her little Pomeranian. Uh, she recently passed away. So it's attainable. And she was in great health. Uh, literally, she went to sleep, and that was it. So that's attainable. Uh, we have a saying in my clinic that 150 is the new 100. I don't know whether that is attainable, um, but I do think that we are, you know, even Dave is, is going to check out. Now, if he does it at 180, that's, that's fine. But we all have to realize that no one's getting out alive. Sure. Right? So what I think all of us want is that we want the, those years to be great years. And that's attainable. Um, I might get bored at 150. I don't know. Um, I think some of the things that Dave is trying, good for him for trying. I'm, um, they're not proven that's going to work, sure. but good for him for trying. Sure. So one of the things you mentioned earlier is the importance of relationships and support groups as you talk around like you know healthy people being around healthy people and obese and obese and what happens through osmosis or what have you with regards to the microbiome how important is that when you think about longevity relationships people purpose uh, it's so important it's scary uh, I used to give a give a talk called at ease e-a-s-e and Disease is the lack of ease, and ease stands for eating, attitude, spirituality, and exercise. And the spirituality part is, is so important. First of all, um, most of these super olds have some link to however they wanted to find it, whether it's church, like with the Adventists, whether it's a connection to... Uh, some energy, um, whether it's connection to a group. Uh, there's some great books looking at super old people who say, 
you know, I've lost my wife, I've lost my kids, I have to stay around for my community, I have to be the source of knowledge for my community, I'm, you know, I'm the repository. One of the things that's happened in certainly our society is not only do we no longer value elders, elders do not live in our house anymore, um, they're they've been relegated multi-generational multi-generational living is a huge thing yeah that's part of the blue zones it is yeah, yeah. everybody lives in the same house yeah. uh you know i learned uh, so much from from my maternal grandfather uh, you know picking me to shreds and <laughs> arguing with me all the time um you know I, I turned into a great debater and if i didn't have him they lived literally down the street and he'd always be in our house and you know at dinner and you know so we've lost that We've really lost that, which is a shame. But getting back, I see, first of all, I tell anybody, never retire, ever, um, particularly men. And more and more women now, as they've been in the workforce, men are really main socialization is in the workforce. And when we lose that socialization, I just see so many of my patients who say, oh, man, am I going to really enjoy retirement? And they just start dwindling away. You got your work cut out in Palm Springs. Yeah, no. And, well, I think it's a people, I think that's maybe shifted or maybe not. I think people have this goal of retiring and then going to Palm Springs, going to Florida and hanging out and playing golf. But the reality is it's, it's, it can be devastating in terms of personal health when that happens. Yeah, it really does. And again, we're starting to see it in you know the female population who have who have been in the workforce now for a number of years. Interesting. Women, luckily, are much better at men as a generalization <laughs> to form groups um, and have a tight knit social network. Totally agree. So there was an interesting. Uh, we had the founder JC, the founder of Movember. Are you familiar with that organization? Um, so they, they do a lot of stuff around cancer awareness and specifically when he was on the podcast they were really trying to tackle suicide with men and he shared and i thought this was fascinating and very true that women are just better at keeping friends and men as they age don't and then if something goes wrong with the marriage relationship they're alone and like the, the numbers were staggering with how fast there's like an epidemic with men in their 40s and 50s uh becoming depressed and taking their lives and he shows how it unraveled and it was around so much of it was due to relationships and not keeping relationships and also men not articulating to a friend to, to a guy friend like hey i'm not doing well they That's don't right. we don't, do, we don't that. do that we don't share we talk we go to a sporting event we hang That's out it. we have a beer we yeah. drink and no that's a you know that was one of the you know failures of Weight Watchers, um, Weight Watchers always wanted to get men uh, in Weight Watchers, and men failed at Weight Watchers. They're not good at community. They're yeah, sharing. They're and just, Weight Watchers arguably is like the strongest community. It's absolutely. amazing. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, men will not share. <laughs> so I just want to touch on alcohol quickly since we touched on other fun things. Alcohol still okay? Yeah, so alcohol follows a hormetic curve, and hormesis is that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And alcohol is a classic hormetic drug. Uh, there is good evidence that I talk about in the longevity paradox that if you look at people who don't drink versus people who drink a, a moderate amount versus people who drink a huge amount, 
the huge amount of drinkers and the no drinkers don't do very well, but the moderate drinkers actually get a health benefit. And I think it's not the alcohol. There's nothing interesting about alcohol. It's the delivery device for polyphenols. And well, also it's this. Well, it's, yeah, it's two people and it enjoying is. a group. Well, and I think that's true. Alcohol is one of our methods for getting socialization. So has anyone ever done a study of like people who drink in social groups probably more heavily versus people who drink solo? That would be a great study. Yeah. And I bet you the, you know, the social drinkers do far better yeah. than the solo drinkers. Um, the solo drinkers more likely, you know, are going to be the alcoholics sure. in the group. Sure. But also, like, if you, if you talk about the connection, relationships, sure. stress, all those things. Yeah. Usually it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, and again, if, if you don't drink, don't start. Exactly. I love that line, too. So with regards to stress, what do you do when you get stressed? The guy who's supposed to have all the answers, you're traveling, you got best-selling books, you're all over the place, you're, we were talking about flying, you're, you, you, I fly a lot, you make me look like I'm a, I just started to fly, <laughs> how much you fly. <laughs> You've so got like, time, got you're young, time. I'm young. <laughs> you'll catch so up. So what do you do when you're, do you have any like, you know, quick hacks, what do you do when you're stressed? Well, interestingly enough, um, I am terrible at meditating. My, my wife is great at it, but I used to meditate during operations, I would actually get in the zone, and nothing was more, you know, stressless than operating, which sounds funny, but it's, you know, once I'm operating, I just start meditating. I don't think when I'm operating, but last year I finally stopped operating because I don't like to eat and run, as they say. I don't, I don't want to operate on somebody and then hop on a plane. Sure. Uh, so what I've found is I've had to okay, where's now my stress buster? And it turns out it's actually my dogs. And so I will leash up the dogs and just head out the door. And what I do is I, I watch my dogs and I watch them interact with the environment. And I mean... It's a form of mindfulness. Yeah, it's, it's like, holy cow, you know, look what they're seeing. Look at this. Look at the happiness. You know, you know I've got two females and a, and a boy, and I really get into him sniffing a bush and deciding which angle of attack he wants to pee on it. And it's like, you know, you do that long enough, you go, wow, you know, there is a science to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just, that's how actually I meditate and wash my dog. I love it. Yeah. So it's 2019. I think it is the most exciting time to be in wellness, and, and we're just getting started. So what do you think the future holds? What do you think the conversation is going to be, say, a year from now? What's interesting? What's exciting? What do you, how do you see this unfolding? Uh, I, well, I think the, the research um, about polyphenols, these plant compounds that interact with our microbiome, with interact with us, is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I do think that once we unravel the microbiome, I mean, a thousand new species were just found uh, two months ago. Right. There's 10,000 have been found before. We're going to find that there's a virome that we have to understand. We ha we're going to find that there's a mycobiome, a fungal microbiome, that may have huge impacts. Paper out recently shows that women's breast milk 
has not only large amounts of bacteria, but also large amounts of fungi that populate their baby's gut. So breast milk is not sterile. And when we start figuring out, you know, why is that stuff there? You know, why is 5% of women's breast milk a sugar molecule that the baby cannot, you know, metabolize, but it's there for those bugs to eat? We're going to go, holy cow, you know, we're just a condominium for bugs. <laughs> and the more we understand how to make them happy, uh, the more they're going to keep their condominium, us, in great shape. Interesting. So one last thing, I forgot to ask you this earlier. So you mentioned we talked about nuts. Obviously, you're not a fan of cashews. You didn't mention almonds. So almonds, I have a number of patients with rheumatoid arthritis that do react to the peel in almonds. Uh, so I ask them to eat like Marcona almonds, uh, perfectly safe. Most almond flour has been blanched and, and the peel's been removed, so usually safe. I talk a lot about nuts in the book. Uh, walnut's probably the best nut. What's your favorite nut butter then? Uh, walnut. Walnut butter. Yeah, or What's number two? Cashew. Cashew. Sorry, not cashew. Sorry, sorry. 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 Pistachio. We're breaking Whoa. news here, guys. Yeah. We're Pist breaking news. Pistachio. Pistachio. Pistachio butter. But not almond butter. No. Almond butter's okay. Okay, it's okay. There's actually a peeled almond butter um, that you can buy. Okay. It's really good. My okay. daughter uses it. So. Okay, almond butter. I just wanted to make sure. I was like, you know what? He didn't mention almonds. I didn't miss that. Yeah, so yeah, I'll eat almonds that are, that are peeled. We have Marcone almonds in the house. My Perfect. wife likes them more than me. Uh, I think really, and there's some really, really, really good studies of the health benefits of eating walnuts and, and nuts in sure, general. Sure, pistachios. Pistachios. Yeah. Macadamia nuts, quite good. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to make sure almond milk. I yeah. know like almond milk and almond butter is like preferred from our audience, so I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Nothing changed there. No, no. Um, and, and last question, going back to the, sorry, jump back to that. I was like, we didn't talk about almonds. <gasps> oh, no. Um, going back to the microbiome, like fecal transplants, where, where do you think we are on that? Fun fact, when I was a medical student in the dark ages in the 1970s, one of my mentors, Dr. Orly Mansberger, was doing fecal transplants on human beings. This is in the 70s. And he was getting the fecal transplants from medical students like myself. And once a week, they would pass around what was called the honey bucket. And we'd take it into the bathroom and take a crap. And he would take it back to his lab and put it in a wearing blender. And he would put it in an enema bag. And he would give fecal transplants to what was then what called pseudomembranous enterocolitis. It's C. difficile. How did that come about? Because we had first developed broad-spectrum antibiotics during in the early 1970s. So we had killed off the entire microbiome, and there were these you know, hardened criminals, C. difficile, which is a native part of our population that just says, hey, everybody else is gone, let's take over. We didn't know that was the bug, but these worked dramatically, and everybody thought it was absolutely nuts. So I think I have not had to do a fecal transplant in any of my patients. I think those bugs, the little guys hiding in the crypts are there, and you got to coax them out. you got to not give the bad guys what they want to eat, and they'll come out and they'll repopulate. And the book is a lot about telling these guys to come out of hiding. <laughs> I love it. Well, 
Thank you so much, Dr. Gundry. The always fascinating, entertaining, and always informative. Well, we try to be. And congratulations on the longevity paradox, how to die young in a ripe old age. Everyone, check it out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Good to see you. you.